0: to the book of Judges. If you don't have a Bible and you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, it's going to be on page 200. 200. As you know, we've been in the book of John, but in the interest of having a balanced diet, Old Testament, New Testament, prophets, history, Gospels, trying to make sure we learn all parts of our Bible well, we're going to take a break from John's Gospel, and spend some time in the book of Judges. Now, many of us uh, need to play Old Testament catch-up. You know, we know a lot about the New Testament, not so much about the Old. Maybe you're new to the faith, maybe you're here and you're not even a Christian. Let me tell you how we get to the book of Judges. The Bible begins with Genesis. In the beginning, God created everything. That's how the story, well, begins. Then a short time after that, Genesis 3, sin ruins everything in the story. Then a short time after that, God chooses a man, Abraham, and says, through you and through your family, I'm going to rewrite this story. I'm going to bring redemption and salvation to this world that's been broken and damaged by sin. But then a short time after that in the story, you can just keep reading through the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, we find that Abraham's family, now known as the nation of Israel, has been taken captive, enslaved in Egypt. The nation of Israel, the family of Abraham, cries out to their God, and God hears them and sends a rescuer, a redeemer. His name was Moses. Moses comes and and rescues God's people from slavery in Egypt, takes them through the desert, and all the way up to the promised land, the land of Canaan. That's a very, 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 very short telling of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That takes us to book number six, the book of Joshua, which you kind of have to understand if you want to make sense of what we're going to talk about in the book of Judges. Now, There's a lot going on in the book of Joshua, but for this morning, you just need to know that the book of Joshua primarily tells us about the conquest of the promised land, the land of Canaan. Much of this information is repackaged in chapters 1 and 2 of Judges with some additional information, but let me just give you a summary of that saga, okay? Moses dies, Joshua takes over and leads the people of Israel in a series of battles, against the peoples of the land, primarily the Canaanites, but as you saw in our scripture reading, the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the fill in the blank and then add an ite at the end of it, all those. They go in blitzkrieg fashion and they start taking the people out. The people of Israel were less than faithful to God during this time. God said, hey, just, you know, I'm giving you some commands, do what I'm commanding you. They didn't, but God was still kind to them, blessed them, kept his covenant promises, and gave them great success in battle. Now, any war history buff will tell you that there are essentially two phases to taking over a territory. Phase number one is entering in and the initial stage of conquering. Stage number two is solidification. The book of Joshua tells us primarily about phase one, the entering into the land, the conquering, And then when we get to the book of Judges, we enter into phase two, the solidification of that victory. The promised land, by the time we get to the book of Judges, has basically been won and it's been divided up amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, Benjamin, you get this and Levi, your tribe gets this, except for the Levites, actually a bad choice, they didn't get any land, but you see what I'm saying? And each tribe needs to go into its own respective area in the promised land and finish the job of driving out the people who may still be there. And the book of Joshua ends with a covenant renewal ceremony where Joshua leads God's people and saying, hey, you remember all this stuff that God promised us? Let's be obedient and do what he's commanded so that he can bless us as we enter into the promised land. Turn with me, if you're in the book of Judges, turn with me just a a little bit back to Joshua 24. We're just gonna start in, in... In Joshua 24, I'm just going to read this covenant renewal ceremony down to verse 15. Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Sheshem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many, and I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards... they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, ba- to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored. And cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In this covenant renewal ceremony, Joshua recounts this grand story of Yahweh being kind to his people. And he says, if this is what God has done for you, now you and kind Follow him in obedience. Put away all of your evil, all of your idolatry, and be obedient in this land that you are about to enter into. Which takes us to the book of Judges. Which begins with the death of Joshua. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 1. You see it right there. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. And it doesn't take long You don't have to go very far into the book of Judges to see that the people of God failed to obey the word of the Lord that came through Joshua at that covenant renewal ceremony that we just read about. Israel failed to act in faith. Israel failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land utterly as they were supposed to, and soon enough, idolatry takes root and begins to corrupt the people of God. Friends, the book of Judges is a very sad story. It's the story of rebellion, repentance, and relapse. It's the story of what happens when a people have no leader, no covenant mediator like Joshua or Moses, no king like David or Solomon. The book of Judges covers the period between Joshua's death and the rise of the kings of Israel, which is about 300 years from the 11th century to about the 14th century B.C., and during these many years, the Lord graciously would raise up these sort of ad hoc leaders known as judges to rescue Israel from the consequences of her sin so that he could continue to bless them with the promises of the covenant. As you'll see in the coming weeks and months, none of these leaders in Israel, no judge that the Lord himself raised up was sufficient they were all endowed with power. We're going to see next week about judges upon whom the Holy Spirit descended in power and yet they were so corrupted by sin that they were not sufficient to entirely save these people. What Israel needed was not an occasional judge to rise up and take control and kind of right to steer the ship back in the right direction. No, what they needed apparently was a king. You can see this at the very end of the book of Judges. Turn with me. We've looked at chapter 1, verse 1. Now let's look at chapter 21. (coughs) Chapter 21, verse 25. This is a sort of one-sentence summary of the entire book of Judges. In those days, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people of God left to their own devices will just do what they think is right, what they think is good, what they think is true. What the people of Israel needed was a king who would shift their eyes from their own understanding and focus their eyes on the law of the Lord, on His word, on His covenant which is just the kind of king that God commanded his people to appoint all the way back in Deuteronomy. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy 17. (coughs) Look at Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again." And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord." his God, by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. What Israel needed, friends, was a king who loved God, who was enamored by the Lord, who would dedicate his, his life every day to studying God's word and then leading people the people of God according to God's word of course if you have read the bible even once as you read through the time of the kings we see that the kings in Israel do not do that seems like every king is worse than the last every king also like the judge like the judges in Israel seems to be insufficient What Israel needed was something better than a king, someone greater than a Moses, someone more powerful and wise and good than all 12 of these judges combined. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. For now, we are in the time before the kings, we are in the time of the judges. And let me tell you, friends, this is a very dark time indeed. Let me also tell you before I pray and then we enter into the six points of the sermon, that this is an introductory sermon to the book of Judges, and I want to make sure that we cover a lot of ground. This morning's sermon is going to be a little bit longer, not a lot longer, but a little bit longer than usual. I know you're excited. It's like free baseball, extra innings, okay? Um, But hang in there. It's really important that we really get a a bearing on this book before we dive into it. it. We need to understand the forest before we begin to examine the trees, and so we're going to spend a lot of time doing that this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in together. Lord, all of your word is true, inspired by you, given to us for our good. Lord, would you train us up for godliness this morning with the book of Judges. Amen. I've got six points for you this morning. These are going to be the six characteristics of the book of Judges. We're going to look at Judges chapter 1 and 2 and really just use that to kind of explain the book of Judges as a whole which I think essentially what it's doing. So I got six characteristics for you and I'll just give them to you one at a time as we go. The first characteristic of the book of Judges is that it is dark. It is dark. Uh, let's, Let's try something here and don't be so cool that you don't participate, okay? You're not that cool. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. Unless you got a bad back. But I've got a bad back and I'm standing, so. All right. Please be seated, please be seated if you have ever heard a sermon preached in your church on the book of Judges. Please be seated if you have ever heard a sermon preached in your church on the book of Judges. Hmm. Please be seated. Wow, I can't believe how many people are standing. Samson, right, okay. Please be seated if you have ever heard a sermon on the book of Judges anywhere on anything other than Samson. Wow. Please be seated if you have ever heard an entire sermon series preached through the book of Judges. You may be seated. That's not good. (laughs) Why do churches avoid the book of Judges? Why are pastors so reticent to preach the book of Judges? It's probably for the same reason that they're reticent to preach things like the book of Leviticus. The book of Judges is dark. And we live in a culture where everyone wants to feel happy and entertained all the time. We want everything to be light and bubbly. We want everyone to come into church and to spend an hour and not a second more feeling uplifted before we go back out into the world. And what that means is that Judges was not the first choice or the third choice for a sermon series. Let's just talk about how dark the book of Judges is. Let's talk about the violence in the book of Judges. Look at chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. (coughs) They, that's the warriors, found Adonai Bezek, that's Lord Bezek, at Bezek, what are the odds, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Now, this is the account of the conquering of the peoples of the land of Canaan, as you know. And as they would go out and fight these battles, one of the battles that they fought was at Bezek and they chased down Adonai Bezek or Lord Bezek, who was kind of like the tribal king of that area. And what we see here in the text is that they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And uh, yeah, that's pretty gruesome. It was also very practical. In the ancient world, kings would establish their, their dominance, their power, their political influence through battle. And if you cut off someone's thumbs and big toes, they can't go out into battle and so you therefore really suck all of the power out of their reign and authority by doing this. It would sideline them. And then, you know, of course, this was common practice in the day. You can see that even when this happens to Bezek, Lord Bezek, he doesn't say, you're so cruel, Israel, how could you do this to me? He says, no, I've done this to 70 other kings that I've conquered. It's just a dark time of brutal warfare. This is typical of the violence that we find in the book of Judges. You also see something like child sacrifice. One of the main objections that modern readers have to the Bible is the story of the conquest of Canaan, the conquest of the promised land. And we have to be honest and say that they object to it because this conquest is not pretty. I mean, if you were paying attention to the language that our Susan sister used when she read from Deuteronomy just now. It says, not, not only that you shall utterly drive them out, but that you shall utterly destroy them. God wanted these people to not only be kicked out of the land, but to be destroyed. Now, there are different schools of interpretation when it comes to this conquest. Some theologians, scholars, trying to soften the conquest, trying to make it more palatable to the modern man and his moral system. So they'll say things like, the Lord clearly commanded Israel to destroy these people. Or, that's the worst case scenario, or they'll say that they were just supposed to drive them out. But I think it's pretty clear that they were supposed to utterly destroy them. Either way, neither one of those plays well to the modern man. If we kill them, that's bad. And if we just drive them out, that's colonialism, so that's also bad. But here's the thing about the modern Western man. He's arrogant. He's so proud of his own virtue that he rarely sees just how unvirtuous his morality actually is. Let me tell you a story. I was once on a boat in the middle of the jungle with uh, a lady, a German tourist. It wasn't just us, there was a lot of us. And uh, we were talking about Western medicine and, and how I as a missionary was not only bringing the gospel to some tribal people but also bringing some Western medicine. She was very upset with me She said what I was doing was just another modern expression of colonialism. She said that the the native people had their own medicine. They didn't need my medicine. They didn't need me me to come and try to bring down all this western stuff to them. They, They had tree bark. That was good enough. Now, this lady had never spent any time with the natives. I had. I lived in a village with them. She had spent a lot of time in liberal college classrooms where she had learned about the evils of Western colonialism. She had never spent any time in a hut with these natives who were suffering and who very much wanted Western medicine, who wanted antibiotics, who wanted IVs, who wanted surgery. So just at the outset, let me just encourage us, friends, to not be like my German tourist friend. Let's not be too quick to judge a situation from a distance that we don't fully understand. Now, let me help you understand. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, God tells the people of Israel what these people in the promised land, what they're like. He tells them one of the reasons why he's sending them in to drive them out and destroy them. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 12. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, like like the pagans, like the idolaters, For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. All the peoples in the land of Canaan practiced child sacrifice. And not a little, a lot. They would burn their babies alive. That's how evil these Canaanites were. They were wicked. Now, our pluralistic age tells us that all cultures, all of them, you can just pick any two cultures, they're all morally equivalent. That is false. Every culture is not morally equivalent. We're all evil in some sense, yes, but that does not mean we're equivalent. North Korea and North America are not the same. Is the United States evil? Absolutely. Are we as evil as North Korea? Absolutely not. Was Israel evil? Wicked? Did they have sin? Yes. Were they as evil and as wicked as the Canaanites? Absolutely not. In sending Israel into the land of Canaan to exterminate these people, God was accomplishing two things. Number one, he was bringing justice to the nations. Right? We cry out when we think about the evils in our world today. We go, God, how could you let Idi Amin and Pol Pot and Hitler and Stalin and... Kim Jong, whatever the latest iteration is in North Korea, how could you let them do all these things? God, why wouldn't you punish them and get rid of them and destroy them off the face of the earth? But in the Bible, when we have an example of him doing exactly that, sending in his righteous agents to destroy this evil people off the face of the earth, we go, oh, this is wicked. This is cruel. I can't worship a God like that. Friends, we're being a little inconsistent, are we not? We cannot demand justice and then turn our eyes from the bloody mess that justice must necessarily be in this fallen world. Now the tragic part of this story for Israel is that they failed to do what the Lord commanded. They failed to get the Canaanites out of the land and by the end of the book of Judges we see that Israel has herself adopted the practice of child sacrifice. Now, I'm just going to make a couple of applica- one application in passing before we move on to the next little thing I want to say here. If the Lord would utterly exterminate the peoples of the Promised Land because of their child sacrifice, what does that mean for us? Or we kill millions of babies every year in this country. You also have slavery. You have slavery in the Book of Judges. Now, this subject of slavery is especially sensitive for us as Americans. I don't particularly know why slavery is something that all peoples in all places of the earth have practiced. Maybe it was particularly heinous in our country because it was race-based, but slavery is bad no matter how you paint it. In America, we are all too aware of our own grim history with slavery. In the South, we are especially nervous about it. We're especially skittish and sensitive about it, but we have to own it. Not just the American part, but the Christian part. Christians owned slaves. So we want to distance ourselves from these terribly misguided souls who not only owned, but supported and fought to defend the evil institution of slavery in our country. And yet we have to reckon with the reality of slavery in the Bible. It's there. Closing your eyes to this reality won't make it go away from the new testament commands for slaves to obey their masters to the regulations for indentured servants in the book of the law slavery is all over the bible now if let me just pause right here if you're like Sean are you saying that slavery, no slavery was evil and actually i preached two sermons on this they're on our website ephesians chapter 6 In those two sermons, I show you how God uses the gospel to eradicate slavery from the ancient Roman world and bring about true justice. So go check that out. But slavery is here in the book of Judges. As the book of Judges begins, you see that the people of Israel, who were once slaves themselves, crying out to God for deliverance, help us, free us, they have become enslavers. Look at verse 28. Chapter 1, verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And if you're the kind of person who wants to make notes in your Bible, you can also go to verse 30 and verse 33 and verse 35 and it just shows over and over again, these respective tribes, as they went into their area of the promised land and drove people out, they should have driven them out completely, but they didn't. Once they got strong enough and gained the victory, instead of driving them out like they were supposed to, they enslaved them. We're gonna come back to this in point number two. For now, I just wanna show you, wrap up point number one, which by the way is the longest point in the sermon, don't worry, that this book is full of violence, violence, idolatry, child sacrifice, sexual abuse, and more. The book of Judges is a dark book, but it is a book that is inspired by God himself and given to us for our growth in godliness. How can that be? How can such a dark book be given to us to grow us in the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Many modern students of the Bible have come to think of this book as a book about achieving moral perfection. They've come to think that the Bible is this sanitized document. You know, something like the seven habits of highly ethical people. But that's not what this book is about at all. This book is a story of grace and love and salvation, but it is also a story about the sin that made that grace, love, and salvation possible. And sin is dark. This book is history and it's true history and the truth of history is always uglier than we might imagine but God refuses to sanitize our story. This book is the story of the flooding of the earth, the failure of the nations, the violence of men, the violation of women, the enslavement of peoples, the betrayal of families. It's the story of rape and incest and adultery. It's the story of the cruelty of kings, the corruption of judges, and the plunder of priests. The story is our story. And it is the story of prophets who deceive, prostitutes who get saved, and religious leaders who go to hell. This is the story of a God who comes and dies naked on a cross. The story of salvation is grim. But after the darkness comes the morning light. But in order for us to appreciate the light in all of its glory, we cannot rush through the darkness. Point number two disobedience. The second characteristic of the book of Judges is disobedience. <clears throat> I once knew a young lady. <clears throat> Who had made some very serious mistakes in her life. But then she had her life radically changed. She had a new life handed to her, and this is a true story, on a silver platter. She was taken out of jail. She was placed into a very comfortable recovery program. She had all of her bills taken care of. Someone assisted her with paying off her court costs and legal fees. The church that she joined provided her with a car so that she could go back and forth to work, and the guy who donated it was kind of wealthy. It was an old Lexus, but a Lexus nonetheless, okay? A lawyer volunteered to take on her custody battle so she could get her children back, and she got them back. She was given job training, life skills classes, and all the gospel that she could handle from a cadre of faithful men and women in the church, this young, young woman was prepared in every single way to begin a new life, to leave her past behind. And she only had to do one thing. She had one job. Stay away from drugs. And for a time, she did just that. Until she didn't. In an instant, after relapsing on drugs, she lost her job, she lost her car, She lost her freedom, she lost her children, and she almost lost her life. When I ran into her one day at the gas station and I saw what I I could not believe was the same person, a skeleton of a woman, and I listened to her sad story of her downfall, I immediately, right there in the parking lot, thought of the book of Judges and the nation of Israel. You see, friends, Israel had everything given to her on a silver platter. God, according to the riches of his grace and by the might of his power, had single handedly delivered Israel out of slavery, taken them through the wilderness into the promised land, and over and over again had promised to give their enemies into their hands. And he did just that. Listen to what God says to his people right before they enter the promised land. And tell me if this is not the language of a silver platter. Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God himself will fight for you. Deuteronomy chapter 3. Exodus 23. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and taken possession of the land. Exodus 33. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Exodus 34. Observe what I have commanded you this day, and behold, I will drive out... And then all the other ites. Deuteronomy 11. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Joshua thirteen. All the inhabitants of the country, from Lebanon to Mishrapath Mayam, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before you All they had to do was their one job drive out the inhabitants completely. Now look at chapter 2, verse 2. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. That's what the Lord commanded them to do. It should be in quotes in your Bible. But then here's the verdict. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? They were disobedient. They didn't do it. They had one job. They didn't accomplish it. But maybe... Maybe we shouldn't be so harsh on the Israelites. Maybe we should cut them some slack. I mean, maybe this task is harder than we think. Maybe, okay, okay, here's maybe what happened. Maybe God did everything right up into the point of getting them into the land and those, that first wave of victories, God did that. But then maybe they had to finish the rest of it on their own, which was really hard according to their own strength and power. Right, God does the first part, and then you have to finish the rest on your own. Well, no, that's not the way it was at all. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now look at verse 4. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezak. God had given them everything. All they had to do was just walk in obedience, but they didn't. Why? Friends, you should know that the Lord never issues arbitrary commands. You know, for the parents in the room, sometimes we do that. I mean, sure not you, right? But like I do that sometimes. And sometimes I'll even catch myself. My kids will ask me something and I'll say no, and then I'll be like, "Wait, why did I say no to that?" Yeah, you can do that. That's fine. I was just being arbitrary. But the Lord never does that. There's a very, very specific reason why God wanted Israel to drive the Canaanites from the land. We already talked about one of them, right, to bring justice. But for their own good, there was another reason. He explains in the book of Leviticus, before they go into the promised land, listen to what he says. I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt. That's where you came from. And you must not do what they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. The book of Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in the promised land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods. Saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. If you kind of have trouble listening to long passages of scripture like that, here's a condensed version Exodus 23. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me. You got that? Because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Why did God want them to, want his people to utterly drive these people from the land? Because he loved his people and he knew that if they tried to mix and mingle with the Canaanites, if they tried to coexist, bumper sticker reference, if they tried to coexist with these people, they would end up ensnared by these people. And you see this throughout the rest of the Bible. The people of Israel, any time they try to coexist with idols, they die for idols. Idolatry is like cancer. A good surgeon doesn't go in to remove half of a tumor or even four-fifths of a tumor. He goes in and he tries to excise every last cancerous cell from the patient's body and then just to be sure after surgery just in case he missed something and you can never totally get rid of every cell through surgery he prescribes chemo and radiation there is no partial limited doctrine of warfare with cancer it must be utter destruction it cannot be dealt with in half measures and idolatry is spiritual cancer God did not intend for his people to learn to live with idols. Idols are meant to be destroyed, not tolerated. Seven times in the first chapter of the book of Judges, we are told that the people did not do what the Lord commanded. Look at verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshem. Look at verse 29, and Ephraim, these are the various tribes, right, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived. Look at verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Look at verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho, 32, 33, we could just keep going and going and going. And what was the end result? Look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and the people of Israel did what was evil, in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals that's the false gods and they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and and they provoked the Lord to anger it's almost like God knew what he was saying when he told them what to do Even when the Lord raised up judges to save the people of Israel, they had become so ensnared by idolatry that by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, it doesn't work. Listen to verses 16 and 17. Look at chapter 2, 16 and 17. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Praise God! Verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods, and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. This is what idolatry can do to a people. And let's consider the extent of their disobedience. Look look at chapter 1 verse 28. When Israel grew strong, <coughs> they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. Look at verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nehalal, so the Canaanites lived among them but, be, but became subject to forced labor. Look at verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemesh or the inhabitants of Beshanath, so they lived amongst the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beshemeth and of Beth. I'm losing it, Bethanoth, became subject of forced labor to them. And you can see the same thing in verse 35 and so on. Here's how bad it got. Verse 28 tells us that Israel grew strong. How strong? Strong enough to utterly destroy these people, to utterly drive them out from the land as the Lord had commanded. And what did they do instead? They enslaved them. Why drive the people out when you could use them and profit off of them? Mm. Little did the Israelites know that what (laughs) they thought would be their short-term gain would end up in the long run being their ultimate destruction. Well, let's move on. Number three, point number three, the third characteristic, disbelief. I want to rant there about uh, an application point for you, but this is gonna be a long sermon, but if you can't think of an application about how you are, if you can't get one from that, I can't help you, okay. Point number three, third characteristic, disbelief. Uh, As you know, what we believe and how we live are two sides of the same coin. What we believe and what we do, two sides of the same coin. Now in point number two, we saw that the disobedience of Israel, excuse me, we saw the disobedience of Israel And in point number three, we're going to look at the root cause of that disobedience. Why did they disbelieve? Excuse me, why did they disobey? Because they didn't believe. Pray for me, guys. I'm coming off the rails here. I want to show you something in chapter 1, verse 19. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah... And he took possession, and by the way, he, thats speaking of the tribe, okay, he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Hmm. What's going on there? At first glance, this may seem like a good reason for Israel's failure to do what the Lord had commanded them. But upon closer examination, what is actually proves to be a pretty pathetic excuse. I'm going to show you what I mean. The Lord had already told his people on multiple occasions not to fear the enemy's chariots. Remember the Exodus event? You remember how chariots were such a big part of that drama as the people of Israel were fleeing from Egypt and as they made their way to the sea? Let me read for for you from Exodus 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So, he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots. Reminds me of Apocalypse Now, you know, the ride of the Valkyrie comes on, and you see like the helicopters, right, right? 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. 600 chosen, what's that? Those are like the panzer chariots. Those are like the the high-tech, well-equipped, battle-ready chariots. And then he had a whole bunch of other chariots after that. Were these chariots too much for the Lord? Certainly not. Listen to the way the Lord gloats over Pharaoh and his army and his superior technology in verse 17 of that same chapter. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. Man, that's good. Think about that. Sorry, this isn't in my notes, but I just gotta say it. Think about this, friends. All those who oppose you and who oppose the Lord, one day God is going to get glory over them. Moving on. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Your superior warfare technology doesn't matter to me. I'm God. The Lord would even later, right before the people of Israel went into the promised land, he would point back to that as a means of strengthening their faith before they went into battle. Listen to Deuteronomy. This passage begins like this. Consider today. Meditate on, chew on this fact. Don't just let it go in one ear, out the other. Consider today the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arms, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh the king of Egypt and to all his land and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. Listen to Deuteronomy 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. A chariot? Y'all trying to talk to me about a chariot? You trying to tell me that a chariot was a good excuse? That the Lord gave you victory in the land of Canaan. He delivered you all the way there. And the thing that stopped you from from doing all that you were called to do was a chariot? Do you understand how laughable that is? It's ridiculous. What is your chariot to God? For the people of Israel, the chariots were an excuse to lose, it was an excuse for disobedience. What's your chariot? What has the Lord given you victory over in your life? What has he called you to in obedience? What kind of grace has he given you to be victorious? And yet you choose to focus on this one thing and say, I can't do it, God, because of this. Because of my husband, because of my wife, because of my job, because of my financial situation. Because of my depression or my anxiety. Because, of, because you haven't done this for me or you haven't done that. What is your chariot? I don't know. But you got one. And it's, it's worthless. It's a pathetic excuse. Friends, the Lord has given you victory. He's given you everything that you need in Christ to walk in the obedience that he's called you to so that you can enter into the promised land. Figure out what your chariot is And conquer it. Not in your own strength, but according to God and his might and power. Number four. The fourth characteristic of the book of Judges is that it is depressing. It is depressing. Look at chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. (coughs) Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. What do I mean when I say that the book of Judges is depressing? I mean there is this cycle in the book of Judges. Uh, You could talk about it with the four S's. The people of Israel sin, and then their sin leads to them being put in servitude, but then they cry out to God, and that's supplication, rescue us, God. And then God does, and he brings them salvation, and then they go right back to their sin. Or you could do the four R's. Relapse, the Jews fall into sin. Retribution, God disciplines them for their sin. Repentance, they cry out and they repent of their sin. And then rescue, God sends a judge to keep them from sinning. But then they go back and they relapse again, right? And that's, that's one cycle, but there's also a larger cycle that you see throughout the book of Judges. The Lord raises up 12 judges in all throughout this book, throughout this time, over the course of several hundred years, And with the first three judges or so, you go through these four R's or these four S's and it seems pretty steady. It's not good, you don't like it, you wish that it wouldn't happen, but it doesn't seem like it's too rocky, too unstable. But then as you go to the fourth judge and the fifth judge and the sixth judge, all the way down into the twelfth judge, the spiral gets darker and darker. The sin becomes deeper and deeper. The repentance becomes less and less. The Offense becomes more severe. It's depressing because there are these cycles of going back to sin like a dog going back to his vomit. And you have to remember, friends, that the story of Israel, it's not just about the people who lived in a desert land thousands of years ago. It's, it's your story. Israel is God's disobedient son. And in God's disobedient son we see a picture of ourselves. God's disobedient children. And have you not found this pattern to be something that you've experienced? The Lord delivers you from sin and and then you go back to it and then and then it hurts you and the Lord brings discipline into your life and then you cry out and you repent and you ask God to restore you and he does and you feel so much joy and hope and then and then you go back to your sin again and that's the that one cycle but then and then you see that same descending pattern in your life do you not where your brokenness over your sin becomes weaker and weaker with each cycle your prayers for forgiveness become less intense Less sincere, less often, maybe they just disappear altogether. the things that used to break your heart, you don't, you're not really bothered by anymore. I have that in my own life. Am, am I alone in that? Is it? This is our story. And we need to know that the spirit of God living in us means that we don't have to let these cycles continue. We don't have to be like the Israelites. The Lord has given us victory over these things. He has conquered our enemy, placed our enemy under our feet, in our grasp, so we can fight. Moving on, point number five. Deliverance. The fifth characteristic of the book of Judges is deliverance. We kind of got a little bit of this in point number four, but here it is, kind of summarized. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, but the Lord delivered them. The nation of Israel was exiled in Babylon because of her sins for 70 years. The Lord delivered them. The nation of Israel, because of her continued sin, experienced a drought of the word of the Lord from the time of the last prophet until the time of Christ, the last prophet. This drought of the word of the Lord lasted 400 years, but the Lord delivered his people. Going beyond the Bible, the church in the West remained in a period of gospel darkness for a thousand years. Not that the gospel light ever went out, but it was pretty dark under the Roman Catholic Church. But the Lord raised up men and women to deliver his people. The book of Judges is the story of deliverance because the book of Judges is the story of God who is gracious, who never breaks his covenant promise, who never leaves his people in bondage. He always delivers them. Not because of how good they are, but because of how faithful he is. The book of Judges reminds us of this fact. Look at chapter two, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. The Lord raised up judges to save them. He delivered them. Twelve Deliverers in total, and we'll look at them more in the coming weeks. And then finally, point number six depravity. The book of Judges is a story of depravity, particularly when it comes to the leaders, these judges. As I was uh, trying to decide on uh, uh, a graphic for the book of Judges, because I guess we do that. Uh, I was looking online at examples. What other churches have done for their graphics for their sermon series on the book of Judges? First of all, hard to find because there's not many out there. Second of all, it was a lot of like the 12 heroes of the Bible. Well, yeah, okay, in a sense. But that's a little misleading. They're they're more, excuse me, they're more like uh, antiheroes. They're more like Tragic heroes. (coughs) If you're looking for a porcelain hero in the book of Judges, pristine, got it all together, no kryptonite to be found, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it in the whole Bible. You're only going to find one perfect person in the Bible. His name was Jesus. Every other leader, every other mighty man and woman of God was corrupted by sin. We just say the names of some of the premier leaders in Scripture, and you just tell me if you can think about the big sin in their life. Noah. Abraham. Remember how much of a coward he was? Trying to give away his wife, pretending that, okay. Isaac. Jacob. King David. Oh, no. There's that whole, yeah, that whole debacle. Josiah, the reformer king of Israel. No, he didn't cut down all the Asherah poles in Israel like he was supposed to. Got one, New Testament, the Apostle Peter. No. It doesn't get any better when you leave the Bible and go into church history. The early church fathers shot through with sin and doctrinal confusion. The godliest leaders of the medieval church. Nope. Ah, here we go. We're Protestants, right? Amen? We're Christian first, but we're also Protestant. The Reformation. There we go. That's where the sinless leaders began with Martin Luther. No, not even close. Jonathan Edwards. George Whitefield. all of these iron men stood on feet of clay. The book of Judges is called the book of Judges, and that may lead you to think that this book is about the 12 leaders who rescue Israel from her folly. It's not. This is a book about God. A God who uses fallible and fallen men and women for his own good purposes. This book is the story of how Nothing and no one can keep God from fulfilling his promises to do his people good. Not the Canaanites and their chariots, not the Baals and the idols of the nations, not the disobedience of the Israelites, not the corruption of their leaders, no Satan or demon or angel, no king or country or military power. Nothing can keep God from fulfilling his covenant promises to do his people good and rescue them. From the curse of the fall. The book of Judges is dark. In some places it's as black as night. But if you look closely, if you show up on Sunday morning and you you just commit to paying a little bit attention, just pay attention just a little bit. Read carefully. You'll begin to see a, a glimmer of light. Hazy at first. A pinprick off in the distance. But as our story moves forward, that light will flare out into the universe, into the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect leader, the final judge, the better Moses, the better Joshua, the perfect king, our forever priest. And he will bring light to this darkness. And he will bring joy to this lowly world as far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have received this morning. We pray that you would bring everyone in this room back in the coming weeks to hear what you have to say to them from this book. Would you equip us, the men who will preach from this book, to lead your people well for the glory of your name. Amen.